Morning, everyone. Morning. Nice to be back with you again. Thank you for your prayers for us when we were in Suffolk. It rained most of the time. It was freezing cold. Um, but there were about 80 at the residential week there, and uh, it was a great privilege to preach to them uh, for the last time under Andy and Miriam's Jeff's auspices. Andy and Miriam were the counties evangelists for Essex, uh, for a long time. They're both now in their 70s. And they've been running this, they're actually running two weeks uh, for over 50s in Essex um, for the last 43 years. So it was a great privilege to be with them for the, the last spell for which they were responsible. And it's being taken over by another Andy uh, who's with his wife going to take on the responsibility of that particular work. So thank you for your <laughs> prayers. Our morning reading is from Romans 16 as we finish our study in the Epistle to the Romans. Romans 16. Just to say that I hope to begin a study on Joshua uh, next week and ongoingly for the next four or five months. So value your prayers for that as I prepare and also as you have the doubtful responsibility to listen. But I would value your prayers in my preparation. So the last few verses then of Romans 16. And Paul writes to this church that he's never been to but hopes to go to. I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone who has heard about your obedience, so I am full of joy over you, but I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent, about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, sends his greetings to you, as do Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my relatives. I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, send you his greetings. Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Quartus send you their greetings. Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all nations might believe and obey him, to the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Just to remind us, you'll remember that the first 16 verses of this chapter have the repeated phrase of in Christ and in the Lord. 
occur at least eight, eight times in the, in the previous verses. So what the Apostle has been emphasizing to the church at Rome is that all folk who love the Lord Jesus are in Christ, and all folk who love the Lord Jesus recognize his lordship. And it's not just a question of knowing the Lord Jesus as some sort of friend and brother, though he is that, but it's recognizing that he is also Lord, and that in that lordship he has the authority over his church according to his purpose. But it's that emphasis upon unity which is primarily in the Apostle's mind as he goes through these Hebrew and Greek and Roman names that we've thought about on a previous occasion. So when you come to verse 17, you'll notice immediately that there's a sort of discordancy here. Because Paul says, I urge you or I beseech you, a phrase that he uses at the beginning of this section in Romans 12, it's exactly the same words. I beseech you, or I demand of you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. That, I believe, is a constant reminder to each of us who are in Christ and who are brothers and sisters together in the family of God that we need to have an awareness constantly of those who would cause divisions and put obstacles in our way. We need to be aware. We need to consider the motivation that Paul also emphasizes here. You'll notice in the following verse, uh, verse 18, such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. He actually uses the word belly, I mean, it's quite interesting how polite the NIV has become. But he, he's, he's talking about the baseness of those who seek another course. And anyone who causes division and causes rupture within the life of the church, we need to recognize their motivation is that of self and not for the glory of the Lord Jesus. And it's so easy to be distracted and to become a follower of man or become a follower of a preacher or become a follower of someone who has flattering and smooth words and not recognize what's actually happening, that a division is being caused and arising because of the obstacles that are being put in place, you'll notice what Paul says, that are contrary, contrary to the teaching you have learned. It's easy to become deceived in our minds by contrariness, by wanting to be different, by deciding in our own thinking that we know better than the teaching of the apostle, for example, and deciding, well, I'm going to play my own furrow and I'm going to do it my way, and thus become a source of division and contrariness within the life of the church. But you'll notice that Paul says here, there's one solution. From such we are to turn away and keep away. Keep away from them. Don't touch them with a barge pole. And even though there may be something within the teaching which you find attractive or which I find attractive, we need to come back constantly to the first principles that are outlined for us. 
in the New Testament. That's why the Holy Spirit directed the apostles' teaching. The Spirit is always a spirit of unity. Remember the apostles said earlier in this particular book that we to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's a requirement. It's a responsibility, a responsibility for every generation of Christians. And it doesn't matter if you've recently become a Christian or you've been a Christian for 50 years. We're all equally gullible. And we need to recognize whenever a teaching arises within the church, which is contrary, as the Apostle says here, to the teaching that we have learned It seems to me that we have this naivety that Paul suggests here at the end of verse 18, where he talks about the naivety of the minds of people who are thus drawn away. It's a sign of immaturity to be drawn away by false teaching. It's a sign of a non-recognition of the flattering and smooth words of those who are eloquent. And Paul says here to each of us, we need to be aware of this. We need to have it constantly in mind. And, you know, as a wise man once said in the Old Testament, there's nothing new under the sun. And new doctrine is very often old heresy. And please be aware of that. I purchased a book recently by a very well-known author and being frank about it, the section which I've read so far is both naive and corrupt. It's not true. It's based on a so-called vision that was shared with this particular gentleman and then this guy is attempting to provide some sort of theological background to it. And what he's actually teaching is not true. So it doesn't matter how great the reputation of the preacher is or how significant he is seen to be. We have the responsibility, my dear brothers and sisters, to constantly bring teaching we hear to the prime source of our teaching, which is the Apostles' Doctrine as revealed in our Holy Scriptures. I don't have the right to tamper with it or to get it to say something new because I happen to take a notion And the Apostle is very clear about this in all his writings. And you remember that the book of the Revelation brings a very strong stricture against those who would cause anyone to disbelieve any of the words that are written in the book as as we have this revelation. But you'll notice the prime object of such teaching is to deceive the mind And we're back really to where we began our studies in Romans 12 in this morning series to recognize the importance of the mind. We are renewed in our spirit by the mind. And yet somehow or other in modern Christendom we seem almost to frown upon the use of the mind in our teaching and preaching. Such people are not serving our Lord Christ but their own appetites. And then Paul brings this word of encouragement. It reminded me of something I read in Martin Luther's teaching many years ago, 
when Martin Luther said, when he was talking about bringing up a, bringing up a child beside the rod for correction, keep an apple for encouragement. And the writing of the apostle is very often like that. He'll bring a strong stricture and then a word of encouragement. And you'll notice in verse 19, everyone who has heard about you, everyone has heard about your obedience, that is obedience to the apostles' doctrine. So I am full of joy over you, but I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. And you'll notice again, he emphasizes the use of the mind. We need to be wise when you do that by thinking, my dear brothers and sisters. We have this ongoing responsibility. Be wise about what is good, but astute or innocent about what is evil. Because our mind absorbs things. And I've been struck recently by the numbers of our younger people who are constantly influenced by what they hear from other sources and what they see. And it's so easy to become corrupted in our minds and be less than wise, not concentrating on what is good and not being innocent about what is evil. Then he talks about two things in verse 20. He talks about the God of peace and the grace of our Lord Jesus. The God of peace and the grace of our Lord Jesus. Whenever Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he never uses phrases uselessly or just because they sound nice. And so he brings this emphasis here at this point as he closes this letter to the Romans. The Roman Empire at this time was continuing to expand. It was constantly enlarging its northern borders. And it was a, a time of warfare. It was also known as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. But the Roman peace was brought about by bondage. Now, about this time in the empire, there were about 60 million slaves in the empire. In fact, there were more slaves than horses, according to the historians of the time. 60 million slaves. I suppose a lot of them were not at peace. But a lot of them were Christians. And as I emphasized the last time I was with you, some of the names that are used in the first section of this chapter were applied particularly to slaves. Where does the slave's peace come from? From where your peace and my peace comes from. He's the God of peace. And we need to have this peace in our hearts and our generation, and particularly in the happenings of recent weeks. I've heard the word turmoil used four times this week uh, in news reports. Turmoil, the opposite of peace. And it's so easy to have our peace disturbed, the peace that we have through our Lord Jesus Christ, the the peace that he has made with God, the the reality of our experience of God in our lives, recognizing that he, he constantly ministers of himself. And you'll notice that Paul doesn't say here, the God who gives peace be with you, but it's the God of peace who will soon crush the works of Satan under his feet. The God of peace. 
What's disturbing you this morning? And we need to allow the Father to minister to us whenever we feel that sense of disturbance. Because Christ is our peace. He, he made peace through the blood of his cross. He, he's brought us into this relationship with the Father who would have been our judge, with the God who would have been our judge. But we now call him Father. And to us he is the God of peace. And you might feel, well, I'm struggling with this. Well then, recognize the reality of the second part of the verse. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. And he does something interesting here. He drops the word Christ from this particular salutation. Why so? Well, Jesus was the name who was that was given to the man. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And it's as though the apostle is recognizing that the, the church at Rome was under all sorts of stresses. Nero's about to come to the throne, and the family was already demonstrating signs of madness. So here was a, a church that was going to face the reality of their, their very humanity being challenged. And he's saying, listen, Jesus knows all about it. It's the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Grace and peace. A particular salutation he uses at the beginning of many of his letters. Grace and peace be with you through our Lord Jesus Christ. But here, this emphasis upon the humanity of the Lord. He knows all about our troubles. Remember we chorus maybe he used to sing. Those all about our troubles, our struggles. And it, it, it's, it's real. You know, he's been here. He's been betrayed. He's been crucified. He knows all about the appalling cruelty of men and women to other men and women. He knows the sense of isolation that you feel at times as a Christian. The sense of being alone. He knows. And Paul's saying to these believers in Rome, he says, listen, recognize the peace and the, the tender uh, generosity of the Lord Jesus. Recognize that he's with you. He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He doesn't go anywhere. He remains always as he is. And then he brings a few salutations. Timothy, my fellow worker, a phrase which he uses frequently of Timothy. Uh, and God willing, next year, I want to look at, uh, in the mornings when I'm with you, I want to look at some of Paul's friends, these unsung heroes of the Christian church. We'll spend a day looking at Priscilla and Aquila and a day looking at Tychicus and a day looking at Silvanus and God willing. And just to recognize how significant these men and women were in the development of the early church. But for Timothy, 
the most frequent appellation is this. He's my fellow worker. And my dear brothers and sisters, if there's one thing which is emphasized in Romans 16, is that you and I are workers together with the Lord Jesus. Workers together with him. He's called us into his family. That's great. He's made us brothers and sisters. That's terrific. But he's made us workers. We're called to serve him, to engage in whatever he gives us to do, and and to do it with all our hearts. And if there's one thing that's been a burden to me over those last six or eight weeks, it's this thought of, uh, am I working? Am I a worker for Christ? Or am I a passenger? I want to be careful. But am I on a cruise liner? Or am I actually working the rigging? You know, are, are, are we actually involved in the ministry of the church locally? Or do we stand off it and say, well, you know, somebody else can do that. I'm not going to do it. And even when we're approached to do something, do we say, I can't be bothered. We wouldn't put it like that. We say, well, I don't think I'm up to that. But, you know, we're really saying, well, I can't be bothered. This is our engagement. We are servants of the Lord Jesus, workers in Timothy was recognized as such by the apostle. He sends his greetings to you. And then he talks about three of, the, three of his relatives. We don't know many of the names of Paul's relations, but we know those, these three, even though I can't pronounce the last one. That You know this, Lucius, Jason, you're well named, you're not here at the moment, is he? And Sosipater. I don't know if any of you have had the misfortune to be called Sosipater. If you do, you might know what it means. I haven't been able to discover what it means. But if you do know what it means, let me know. And Roy, I know, will probably go and research it because he's very good at that sort of thing. But, you know, three characters of whom we know nothing except the relatives of the apostle. And presumably as relatives, in this instance, he's referring to them because they're brothers in the Lord Jesus. And one day you're going to meet these unknowns I've often thought that being in glory is going to be extremely interesting. I used to think it was populated by Irishmen. But, you know, to meet Lucius and Jason and say, you know, how did it affect you whenever the apostle became a Christian? And was he partly responsible in leading you, his relatives, to the Lord Jesus? Is that how you came to know the Lord? Or was it someone else who, some great conversations, won't there be? Tertius normally means the third one. If you're a bit short of names in a Roman household, you call the one, two, and three. But anyway, Tertius, I wrote down this letter, and I greet you. Notice the phrase, in the Lord. He's unknown correspondent, referring to these brothers and sisters he'd never met. And I greet you in the Lord. And then these three that I want to concentrate on just for a moment. Gaius, Erastus, and Quartus. Quartus being four, of course. But you'll see the the sort of links here. There were not many folk of prominent occupation who were called in the early church and became Christians. But Gaius, who was obviously a wealthy character, hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy. 
What a what a statement to make about a, a brother in the Lord Jesus, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy. Jill and I have been hugely blessed by the hospitality we've enjoyed at your hands over the last two and a half years. And thank you for it. It's been such a blessing. Thank you for those who have laboured over a hot stove. Something that I knew little about until I did some cooking at a barbecue uh, for one of our church events yesterday. And it was absolutely roasting. So thank you for getting roasted at your hot stove. And thank you for all your kindness and generosity. And I know a little about what uh, the Apostle is saying here. Guys, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, sends you his greetings. Erastus, the city's director of public works. The city's director of public works. Have you known many Christian civil servants? It's been my privilege to be helped by many of them. I was a civil servant for 10 months. And I met in the Civil Service Christian Union, as it was called then. I met a number of very fine Christians. All of them are more senior to me than I was in the civil service because I was on the very bottom rung of the ladder. And they treated me like a brother. And in those 10 months... It made an impression. And here's a guy who's the city's director of public works. A lot of our major towns and cities would benefit from a city director of public works who's a Christian. Don't be afraid if the Lord has put you in an elevated position to continue to work and minister for him. Wherever he's put us, that's where he wants it. And you may have been somebody prominent and uh, a particular company or in a, uh, another area of banking or whatever. And, you know, the impression that you have made will be lasting. And we have this ongoing responsibility. And I just find it interesting that the apostle who is, is so dilatory in mentioning people of public rank that he should just mention that this man was the city's director of public works. And then with him, our brother Quartus. What a Quartus do? You know, when I, I read a passage like this and I have the time to think about it, I start thinking to myself, what a Quartus do? And then I suddenly realize that the Lord has decided it's none of my business. It's my business to know that Erastus was the city's director of public works. And I should worship the Lord for the fact that he called Erastus. But I need to worship the Lord for the fact that Quartus is my brother. Even though, again, I know nothing about him. Quartus send you their greetings and he couples them together these uh, Erastus and Quartus and then he comes to his closing statement and let me just touch on, on one or two things here if I may now to him who is able to establish you you see in all of the apostles writings what he does is exalt the ministry of the Father the Lord Jesus and the Spirit to him, and he's including the whole of the, the Godhead in this, to him who is able to establish you. And we, you and I look to our foundation, our, our structuring, 
our development in the Christian life to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through the Word. Because he's talking here about the Gospel and the Proclamation. We, we are established in that which we know of the teaching and involvement of God in our lives. And notice what he says here. By my Gospel, he so appropriated this message and the proclamation of Jesus Christ. I was scared stiff the first time a guy said to me, in the open air in Newton Arts, I want you to give your testimony. I was 15 and a half, approximately. And there's quite a big crowd in the square in Newton Arts called Conway Square. It's now a, a closed-off area. Then it was a thoroughfare. It had roads all around it. There's traffic passing all the time. But there used to be public meetings, frequent public meetings, and a market in the, in the square in Newton Arts. And as I say, I was about 15 and a half, and one of the evangelists who came to preach in our little church decided to have an open air on the Saturday afternoon in Newton Arts. And I had never testified publicly to my faith in the town that I lived in. And I was scared stiff, you know. You know what 15 and a half year old fellas are like. And I was worse than most. And here was a man asking me to tell other people in the town about how I felt about the Lord Jesus. <coughs> didn't take very long. We had about three minutes, I think. But I remember one thing from it, and that was it did my heart good. did my soul good to proclaim to others how the gospel of Jesus Christ had affected me, this, this good news of knowing the Lord Jesus. And I don't know if it affected anybody else, but it helped me. And what happens when you testify when you proclaim the name of the Lord Jesus, is that it's good for you. In spite of what most Christians think, it doesn't do you any harm to talk about the Lord. really doesn't. And when you talk about him, it, it establishes you. You know, what the, see what the apostle says here? He links all this. Now who is able to establish you by my, my gospel, recognizing the truth of what he said, and your proclamation... The proclamation of the Lord Jesus. As you tell others about Christ, it reinforces, it establishes your own faith and your own experience of him. According, and I want to go through this in one sentence as the apostle wrote it. He says this, According to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all nations may believe and obey him, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a breathless sentence. But you'll recognize it's the core of what the apostles have been saying in the whole of the epistle. The revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past. What's the revelation of the mystery? Thank you. It's the Lord Jesus. This has been hidden for ages past. It's been prophetically foretold. It's not hidden in that sense. It's been prophetically foretold, but it's now been revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God. Now, you young, young people who are here, younger people, will you listen to me just for a minute? I know you normally switch off, but listen to me just for a minute. This business that you and I are engaged in is by the command of the eternal God. It is not optional. God requires that you and I proclaim Christ. 
that you tell your friends at school that you're a Christian. And don't be afraid of the, uh, the questions that they ask. Just say you can't answer them. But tell them you know the Lord Jesus and he's made a difference in your life. And it's this act of proclamation which is by the command of the eternal God. And if I'm not far out in my thinking, it'll be very soon in our country when it'll be almost impossible to declare the work and ministry of Christ clearly in this country. Because you'll be viewed as a bigot, you'll be viewed as someone who doesn't know anything about the real world. That somehow or other the world has changed. And that which used to be called sin can't be called sin anymore. Because none of us are sinners anymore. I tell you from this platform, we're all sinful and we're going to hell without the intervention of God. And that's why God commands all men everywhere to repent. And why this is an ongoing eternal command. It doesn't become optional because of the flavor of the nation. You and I are called upon to make this proclamation by the command of the eternal God. Why? So that all nations might believe and obey him. You see how far we've moved from this in our own country? And God says this to us in the, in the closing verses of the epistle of the Romans, this so corrupt nation of the apostles' time. This nation where everything went and every man worshipped his own God. And the eternal God says through the writings of the Apostle Paul, he says, listen, this is what I demand of the nations, that all nations might believe and obey because he's the only wise God. And as to him is the glory. And one day you and I will be called to account for whether we obeyed his command or not whether we told others about the Lord Jesus or whether we just commented when we had a notion that we better say something here. This is hugely, hugely close to my own conscience at the moment. It is better to obey God than man. And whatever man says, you and I are called to obey the command of the eternal. This unchanging and unchangeable God with whom all men have to do and all men and women will be answerable to him and that's real scary to quote my grandchildren but it's a fact we're going to pray together and then we'll sing our closing hymn Father and what a privilege to call you the eternal God, our Father. We bow in your presence. We recognize your authority. We rejoice in the glory which you have with the Son. And we pray in your majesty that you will intervene in our society, indeed intervene in our own hearts, so it will not be fearful and afraid and somehow or other hide behind being politically correct, but recognize the necessity, Father, to proclaim your word and to proclaim its truth, to recognize that you are the eternal one or the one before whom we will stand and one who will judge us. And we do pray in your mercy and grace that you will step into this nation, step into our society, and begin to bring men and women to their senses so that they will recognize that not everything goes and to be liberal is somehow or other to be theological to recognize that you have the first call upon our loyalty 
and the first call upon any gifts that you have given us. In your mercy, Father, hear our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.